Welcome to the Into Security Chats podcast, brought to you by Info Security Magazine, the leading industry magazine and website for information and cybersecurity. I'm your host, Beth Mondral, Info Security's editor, and during this podcast, I will be shining the spotlight on some of the industry's finest minds. Welcome to this edition of Into Security Chats podcast. And this month, I am delighted to be joined by the quite wonderful Jen Ellis. So welcome, Jen. Hi, thanks for having me. Quite wonderful. I like that. Can I put that on my LinkedIn profile? (laughs) I I expect it to be added by the time this goes out for sure. Perfect. (laughs) Um, So Jen spent over a decade employed at the cybersecurity company Rapid7 and is now an independent security advocate who is working to improve public safety in cyber by collaborating and advising policymakers and government bodies. But before we get into discussing some of the things that we've um, raised in our chats before this podcast, including the role of the security community in the policy side of things um, and how we best utilize data in the cybersecurity world, one question we ask all of our guests is for a food and drink pairing they'd recommend to our listeners as they sit and enjoy our conversation. So Jen, what what would you recommend as a snack and drink? Right. So um, I had a bit of a head scratch on this because I have all sorts of um, food issues, which makes me one of the most really annoying people that people don't really want to have around their house to feed. Um, and in fact, the running joke with my friends is that uh, I eat at a sort of level of the average four-year-old. So I thought I would kind of lean in on that. Um, I, I recently had some people around uh, to my place and somebody brought with them a massive bag of ice gems. Now, I had not had ice gems since I probably was about four. And as a result, my inner kid was incredibly excited by the appearance of these ice gems. Um, and and then obviously, as I ate them, the sugar combined with the excitement made me very bouncy indeed. So my food and drink pairing I'm going to propose to you is um, you guys should all go check out ice gems. They're still good. They're still sugary delicious. Um, and I had mine with mint tea because that's just how rock and roll I am. That's very uh, two ends of the spectrum there. I think a a mint tea is a very adult beverage. uh, Ice jam is very very reminiscent of um, children's parties in the 90s for me. I I feel like that's that's my vibe. You've nailed my vibe. I'm like a five-year-old granny. It's it's a very odd combination. (laughs) But, you know, it works for me. Yeah, and I always like to do an explainer for anyone internationally that's listening to some of the things that comes up, especially when we're talking to UK guests. And ice gems might be a head scratcher. Um, So essentially, they're miniature biscuits with what would look like a Hershey's Kiss shaped sugar treat on the top. It's not chocolate. So no. there, there we go. That's the descriptor. I am um, told you can get chocolate ones these days, but that is not what I had. No, um, I, I had I, the old school classic. Yeah, I would not approve the chocolate ones in my house, that's for sure. <laughs> um, I am delighted to report they're no longer quite such lurid colours as they were when I was a kid, which I suspect means that they 
despite the fact they're still pure sugar, that they perhaps don't have as many food colorings in them now as they used to. Well, as with everything, including <laughs> cybersecurity, things evolve. Uh, so, I like uh, it. That was beautiful. Yes. Um, <laughs> so with, um, with that in mind, hopefully our listeners have their sweet treat and their sensible meat tea, mint meat tea mint tea <laughs> don't don't have mint don't have meat no, tea that does not no. sound good <laughs> and um they're ready to get into our conversation but first a quick message from us here at info security magazine info security magazine brings you the latest knowledge and insights into the information security industry As well as listening to our podcast, you can join our award-winning editorial team during regular webinars, online summits and live events, as well as access to all the latest cybersecurity news and analysis via our website, infosecurity-magazine.com. So head to the website to sign up for all the sessions, receive regular news and to earn CPE credits. Access all the information you need to know in one place at infosecuritymagazine.com. Now, on with the chat. So we're going to dive into some of the things that you are most passionate about, Jen, which I'm really excited to do. But first, I think it would be really great to discuss how you kind of got into the cybersecurity side of things. Sure. Um, especially because I know or I understand that you kind of started off your career in media communications, which being a journalist, I kind of understand what that Mm. job is. Mm -hmm. Um, Having dealt with many um, media comms counterparts in my time. So Mm. I'd love to hear how you went from that world into really then diving into cybersecurity itself. Yeah, sure. Um, So uh when you say media communications most people probably know the term pr more more commonly they're probably more familiar with that term um and i had uh i'd worked at a small boutique pr agency if i worked at a couple um and really had, had focused i mean to be honest with you i worked on all sorts of tech any kind of b2b technology and including security from time to time and for me um i was not perhaps the um quintessential pr person um i for me like news isn't very interesting <laughs> which i think probably makes me a Excuse terrible me. pr person <laughs> um i because i think you know a lot of what what companies come up with as news you know it's important to a very small group of people for me what was always interesting about b2b technology was how you take something that's essentially like very technical and complex and and quite dry and then you figure out how to make it how to showcase how relevant it is to a broad audience right that's that's really your goal is it's you're trying to do that translation piece and you're trying to really speak to what that relevance and impact is and I was always most interested in the stuff that had the sort of biggest sort of societal impact which meant cybersecurity actually for me was was an awesome fit because security is just so relevant to all sorts of different parts of our lives and so I had as as I said I worked on a really wide, wide range of different types of technology and um during my um, meanderings, um, had uh, met some people who 
um, ended up in the in the leadership of, of Rapid7. And so they sort of said, hey, would you consider coming over and setting up the comms function? And I was very interested in the cybersecurity aspects. Um, the role was in the US, which I thought, wow, that sounds like an adventure. Let's go do that. Um, and I just honestly was so incredibly lucky because I joined Rapid7, uh, this is uh, roughly 12 years ago now, um, and they have they had at the time like some really phenomenally um, cool people doing just really, really, really interesting research. It's not necessarily about how you just build awareness. For me, it's about how you showcase credibility and how you build trust, like those touch points um, that you create that create long-term relationships and that enrich everybody. Um, I think that the awareness piece can be a very sort of empty, one-to-many communication style. I'm much more interested in the back and forth and engagement. Um, and so I just was really blown away when I went to Rapid7 that I got to work with a whole bunch of people doing really interesting work. And they would educate me on all the stuff that they were doing and seeing. And I was able to kind of build community engagement and uh, and through, through all of that technical research, um, really start to learn about security and get really into it. And as I said, I've always been motivated by the stuff that has a strong societal impact. So I feel like I found a home in security. So when I joined Rapid7, I was really fortunate. I got to work with all of these super smart people who were doing really interesting things and they educated me, um, which was amazing, right? Like, so I got to learn about security from people who were really, really doing the technical research on it. And I got to help them figure out how to tell those stories. And over time, that role transitioned and morphed away from being a straight comms role into looking at more of how did we um, drive community engagement? How did we give the security community a voice outside of itself? Um, and, you know, I, it sounds ridiculous on a on a podcast aimed at security professionals to tell security people, hey, security is really important. But I think you have demands on your time. You focus on the microcosm you're in. But the reality is that actually that microcosm is one of millions, right? And And security is relevant to every walk of life, every area of our lives, because we now have connected technologies, we have security issues, but we still treat it as if it's niche. We still have a general population who don't engage with it and don't understand it and think it's too technical and not relevant to them. But meanwhile, because of the impacts for national security and for the economy, governments are starting to pay attention to it all around the world. So my job morphed from being how do you engage the community and how do you tell the story and how do you give the community a voice into how do we advance security on a societal level? But also working with, you know, industry leaders and um, big manufacturers and trade groups, um, really just trying to figure out how do we find consensus and build better norms, that kind of thing. That was a long answer, I'm sorry. No, not at all. It's interesting to see how you were in a company um, in one role and kind of were able to evolve into a different function and it's yep. good to see that organizations do give um, people those opportunities. I give well. I give Rapid7 massive props for that, uh, for letting me, you know, one of, uh, not to make this into an ever for my former employer, but one of their core values is about um, being able to take risks and they enabled me not only to reinvent myself a number of times, but basically to build out into an area that a lot of companies don't really invest in. I mean, to, to basically enable me to go, 
I want to try and figure out how we advance security for everybody, not just people who pay us money. And for a company to go, okay, that sounds really good, do that. That that's actually quite extraordinary. And and so, you know, even though they're no longer my employer, I do actually really give them huge props for that. Yeah. I, I hope to any- see more security companies do it, honestly. Yeah, and I think anywhere where you spell, spend what almost a decade of your career, you've got to give them props. <laughs> right. Sure. It was Something yeah, was, yeah. Right. <laughs> absolutely. Eleven and a half years I was there, so yes, I'm still I'm still reeling slightly from no longer being there. Exactly. Um. So I think next it would be really great to talk about then what you are doing now as you said you're no longer um with rapid seven right and one of the things that you um are involved in is the policy side of things which I kind of mentioned um in my introduction and um so you're a board member for the center for Cybersecurity policy and law here in the Mm -hmm. UK as well as an advisory board member for the UK's cabinet offices Government Cybersecurity Advisory Board. Indeed. Um, so, relating to that, my first question is why is it important to you? And then, obviously, the cybersecurity community at large to be involved in policy. Right. Um, which is a fantastic question. And unfortunately, I do have a soapbox that I drag around on this topic. Um, so, to me, uh, look, if if there's a bunch of government, government scrutiny on a thing, then the people who are most involved in the thing need to be aware. Because one, one thing's going to happen is, like, the government spends a bunch of time on something, they want something to show for it, right? You, they can't afford not to, frankly. Um, so if they spend a bunch of time looking at something, they want to have something to show for it. And if that means that something's going to happen, there's going to be some policy or some new norms or some new, you know, behaviours encouraged or maybe a piece, new piece of legislation then we who work in security are going to be impacted by that. It's our careers that will be on the front line of whatever it is that the government comes up with. And the government has really actually very good intentions on this in that, and this is not just the UK government, by the way. So this is, this is uh, every government I know is looking at cybersecurity. Um, and they are doing it because the numbers of what it costs are in the trillions of dollars per year globally. Um, I think for 2022, the current like sort of estimate is $7 trillion um, in, in, um, in terms of the cost of cybercrime. Yeah, this is, uh, this is the losses that the yeah. global economy has right. to... Absolutely. It's disruption there, caused. Yeah. It's money paid to ransomware attackers. It's the cost of getting your systems up and running again. Lost it's business. L- lost business, lost customer confidence, mm. all of those things. Loss of um, uh, share price, share value because of a loss of trust. Um, mm. And so it's it's a huge amount, right? I, I mean, my brain doesn't necessarily know how to compute trillion, but I know it's a lot. Um, yeah. And so... Governments around the world are looking at cybersecurity and the UK government uh, came out with a new national cybersecurity strategy where they basically said, you know, the UK is going to be a significant cyber power, which means basically not just making sure that we are um, doing everything that we can to protect UK entities, but also thinking about how we become a leader globally on cyber. And so you know, if there's that much focus, and and there is, right, like there are three separate pieces of legislation going through the process that relate to security at the moment. There's been, I think, six government 
um, public consultations on cybersecurity topics this year. And those are the public ones, not the ones that they do with things like their um, advisory groups that I'm in and that kind of stuff behind the scenes. And so if you think about all of that activity, all of it's going to result in things that impact this community. And that matters for a couple of reasons. One, it matters because you as security professionals will have an impact from it. So you need to know what's coming because it's going to impact your ability to ask a budget. It's going to impact your ability to talk to your leadership. It's going to impact the things that you'll have to spend your day focused on. Um, it might impact your ability to get a job or to actually get into the sector because there could be qualifications coming. Um, and then the other side is, if you who know security the best of everybody, do not talk to them, how do you expect them to get it right? You know, people who work in the government, they are experts on policymaking, because that's what they do all day. Mm, They've never, yeah. most of them haven't worked full time in a they, professional they security role. Yeah, they didn't spend a decade. <laughs> No, I will, I will caveat that with saying that NCSC, which is the National Cyber Security Centre, which yeah. is the sort of government's hub on security, the people who work there have deep technical skills. They are absolutely people who have worked in security roles and they do provide really good guidance to the rest of the government. But they provide it based on what they're seeing, which is a, a view, right? It's a view. It's not the full view. The more the government hears from people who are in security roles the better able they are to come up with the right sets of priorities, to prioritize them in the right way, to make sure they're focusing on the right things and not missing things. It's so incredibly important that they hear from security professionals. And when you have people who come together who bring their different expertise to the table and blend that expertise, that's when you get magic. So if you have people who have deep security expertise, and, and like you might not think as a security professional that you've got the, the best knowledge or the broadest knowledge, it doesn't matter. If it's on something like, let's say you focus on AppSec and you're like, well, I don't know enough about, you know, security writ large to go talk to the government. Okay, but you know a lot about AppSec probably. So go talk to them about that piece because that matters. And you see things that other people don't. And so if you go talk to them about that, then when they are thinking about things generally, they can think, oh, this is how the AppSec pieces slot in. Maybe we should focus on it. Maybe we shouldn't. Um, and so I, I think that it's so important to have those voices. And then the government bring their voice of like, well, this is how policy works. And this is what the implications are if you take this step or that step. And you blend that knowledge together. And that's when you get the better outcomes. And if you don't have that balance, then you get outcomes that have potential negative uh, consequences, which is not what the government wants at all. They want to get it right. So they actually want to hear from you. Yeah. So on the hearing from you and you mentioned like the three pieces of we're kind of getting quite UK centric. But as you said, every yeah. single the EU's active, the US is active. Yeah. Canada, Australia. Singapore. So there will be equivalents yeah. to this, the European Union as well. Yeah. So the three pieces of um, policy that you kind of have highlighted to me. Yeah. And that is the um, product security and telecoms infrastructure bill. The yep. update to the network and information systems regulations and yep. the um, Computer Misuse Act update. So the one yep. I wanted to just loop back on, kind of based on what you were saying about getting involved, is the um, NIS um, regulations. Mm -hmm. That's ultimately the rules that the UK was operating under regarding the EU NIS we have to kind of come up with our own. We won't mention the B word, but we do. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that's ultimately why. 
So there was a call for responses to what the government initially put out. I was reading there was about 91 responses. And if you look at the um, publication that the UK government has done, they have given like rebuttal on some of the responses Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. So it is quite an interesting read, actually. So we won't go through everything, but I just wanted to ask 91 responses. Is that what do you think about that number? Do you think it ought to be higher? I mean, what you, what's your thought on this, this kind of process? Yeah, I, so 91 is not a bad number. I mean, I think in an ideal world, they would probably like over 100, because if you just look at it from a purely um, quantitative data point of view, it gives you uh, sort of more more val- validity in your data sets mm. um, if you have at least 100 respondents. Bear in mind of the 91, not all of them will be security, right? They, they will be... Um, so, so the Network and Information Systems Directive, NIS, uh, basically lays out um, a security baseline for um, operators providing essential or critical services, essential or important services, right? Um, and by the way, it's being updated in both the EU and the UK. Those are separate initiatives, uh, obviously, for the, the reason you said we're not mentioning, um, but it is currently going through an update in both spaces. So if you are listening and you're in the EU uh, rather than um, being here in the UK, uh, definitely go and look up. There's information on the EU's website about their, um, and they're further ahead. They started earlier. They're further ahead. They have um, actual language that you can read that's for the proposed update. Um, So of the respondents, the 91, some of them will probably be organizations that are providers of essential services. You know, for example, and I, I don't know who the respondents are, so don't take this as as oh, oh it was them. But like it's possible that the NHS might have responded to say, hey, we provide a pretty essential service, and like these are things that we think we can do and things that we think would be overburdensome for us. So it's not all going to be security people coming back. And it is really important to remember that. Um, you know, I gave the example earlier of AppSec. And if you were to run a process in AppSec, you would probably hear from a lot of apps developers and maybe some app store operators. And you need to have the security voice balance that. PSTI, you mentioned the Product Security and Telecoms uh, Infrastructure Bill. That started out life as a code of practice for consumer smart products or consumer IoT. And when that was developed, so it's a the code has I think 12 principles, 12 or 13 principles um, that lay out uh, recommendations for basically secure by design principles for um, consumer IoT or consumer smart products, and it's really sort of addressed at the the PSTI piece, the product security part of that bill, is addressed at UK retailers that sell those products to sort of say hey, if you're making a product and you want to sell it through our stores, then you have to have these three three elements that are in the in the code of practice, right? Um, and the three elements are um, a way for vulnerabilities to be disclosed, no universal default passwords, and you have to tell consumers how long you'll provide security updates. Pretty reasonable stuff, right? It's not horribly like over the top. But when the UK government was creating that code of practice, and by the way, like, For the UK government, legislation is always the last step. It's not the first. They don't want to go to the legislation if they don't have to. They'd much rather people do stuff on their own. Um, So they start with the code of practice, which is voluntary. And when they were creating it, they had a lot of responses that came from people who manufacture IoT. They had a lot of responses from people who sell IoT. It was really important that they get voices from the security community to balance that out. Because obviously, if you're manufacturing or selling, 
you you want the least disruption possible yeah. so yeah you've got you know, a, you've got you've got your vantage point right which exactly is, hang on a minute all these codes of practices are going to infringe my ability to manufacture or sell this product but right. it does need to be balanced out certainly and i know the eu has a very similar piece of legislation kind of going through their system as well yeah they're working IoT on something devices. called the, the cyber resilience act yeah is something they're act, working on right yeah. now yeah for, and the u.s had globally. the iot Cybersecurity improvement act which basically yeah. used the buying authority of the u.s government um because it's much easier in the u.s for them to say what the u.s government does rather than what everyone else does so they said if you're selling to the u.s government you have to meet these standards um yes it is very mirrored um there's stuff happening in asia around this um actually the code of practice that was created by DCMS for consumer IoT was then turned into an Etsy standard, Etsy EN uh, 303.645, I think. Because it's an EN, that means that the member states all sort of adopt. Um, so it's gone across Europe. And then Australia adopted it as a code of practice. Singapore used it to build things on top of, um, like a labeling scheme. India's adopted it. So these things actually have the potential to go global. And, and, and Really, that's what we want to see happen, because when something happens like that, it creates alignment. What we don't want is a completely disparate, mismatched uh, regulatory landscape internationally, because it makes it much harder to do business internationally if you're having to meet different standards in different countries. So the fact that the code that was created here has then been adopted so broadly internationally is actually a really positive thing. The other thing to bear in mind when, when they have these consultancies is the community of people that focus on public policy is small. The number of companies that spend money on it is small and they tend to be really big companies. So let's use the consumer um, IoT example, right? So let's say you run a consultation on consumer IoT and you have responses from Acme Corp, who are one of the world's biggest um, manufacturers of um, consumer IoT gadgets and whatnots. And Acme Corp comes back and says, all of the things in your code we're already doing, your code is not, not relevant or necessary because we already do this, we invest hugely, it isn't necessary. And you sitting there as the government have had that response from Acme Corp. Let's say you have it not just from Acme Corp, but Acme Corp's two or three biggest competitors, right? All very large companies with quite deep pockets who actually have people whose job it is to work on public policy all the time. The view that you then have from a data point of view is that everybody is aligned in that sector in telling you that it's not necessary and that they're already doing these things. You don't have a view beyond that because you're reliant on the responses you got and the data you've, you've got from your surveys. People who are in the security community who've done research on consumer IoT, who've seen the impacts of consumer IoT breaches, if they don't provide input, the government only has that point of view and they have no way of going to, to, to the senior leadership of government and saying, ah, but we think it's not everybody. We think it's incomplete because we've only heard from the biggest companies, right? They have to take the data at face value. They can't sort of just throw supposition at it because that's not very fair. So they need other voices to come in and say, hang on a second. Yes, it's absolutely true that Acme Corp and their three biggest competitors spend a lot of money on security and are really good about it. But there's a massive long tail in the market of no-name vendors who don't do that. And it's a real problem for this reason. And this is why we need to take steps, right, to protect consumers. They need that perspective and they need it on the record. And so that's why having actual responses is so important. Because, yeah, you can expect that they can look at the market and figure that out for themselves. 
but actually they need it on the public record it needs to be yeah. something that they get as a response yeah because someone's going to scrutinize yeah as it should re- be right yeah someone's going to scrutinize the government officials why they're doing stuff and if they just right. say oh well I googled it and I did a bit of research <laughs> right. like, exactly that's, not, yeah, that's right. not the answer they can give they have right. to have well so and so from this company representing with this expertise etc etc so I guess kind of with that in mind if you're a cybersecurity professional listening yeah. to this and you've never really got involved in the policy stuff before you've never thought Mm. to maybe you've thought um, hang on I don't I'm following the legislation wherever you may be located I don't really know what steps I could take to have my voice heard I'm concerned about IOT I'm concerned about other things yeah I mean I guess you can speak from the UK perspective how what should people be doing yeah, yeah and, you, I guess. <laughs> and this is well this is a really this is a really tough thing right is how do you get involved and and I felt you I felt I had to be invited in and that somebody had to come and say to me like come have a seat at the table and that actually isn't how government is supposed to work in a democratic country in a democratic country you are supposed to as a citizen be able to reach out to your government and raise issues to them and yes people are busy and sometimes things get missed but actually if you talk to the UK government, they do want to hear from people. So there's a a few different things you can do. Any citizen in the nation can reach out to their local representation. That is a thing you can do. Now, your local rep might not have a whole lot of knowledge about cybersecurity and might not really know where to send your, your request or your concerns, but that is a thing you can do. And you can try and you can at least ask them for advice and say, who should I reach out to? Another thing that you can do is reach out to DCMS. This is the Department for Digital Culture, Media and Sport. That is the UK policy setting authority that focus uh, focuses on cybersecurity issues. There are a few others that do as well, like industry regulators, the Home Office covers stuff that's to do with crime. But the main primary one for like building UK resilience is DCMS. And you can reach out to DCMS um, if you type in DCMS cybersecurity into Google, you should be able to find information and you can reach them. You can ping me on either Twitter DM or LinkedIn and say, I'm interested in X topic. Can you help get me connected? I will happily do that. Um, there are other things you can do. You can look for events to attend. So there's the UK Cyber Council, which was actually sort of funded and authorized out of DCMS. And so they've got good inroads. You can reach out to NCSE. Um, they're not a policy authority, but they are an influencer for policy and will help you get connected. If you're part of a cyber cluster um, in your region, any sort of route like that, that you, if you have a trade association you're part of or uh, an ISAC that you're part of, um, if you're a member of uh, BCS, the Institute of Chartered um, IT Professionals, like any of these entities, Tech UK, they all have routes to engage and to, and to give you advice and to help you get engaged. There's simple things you can do, maybe it doesn't sound terribly simple, of looking at, you know, if there are names of people on the documents that get posted online about consultations. I mean, so public consultations in and of itself, you can look at where those are and when they open. I will say, and I've given feedback to DCMS on this, Tragically, there's no way of going on the DCMS website and being like, I would like to subscribe to cybersecurity related consultations and get an email when they open. That doesn't happen. And that's why we rely on the press to help get the word out. So look at InfoSec. They will help you keep up on this and keep track of when things are opening. 
But if you see names of people, then like LinkedIn stalk them or Twitter stalk them and tweet at them. I mean, you know, that that is a thing you can do. It's a legitimate thing to do. Again, we're lucky we live in a democratic country and anybody has yeah. a right to reach out to a civil servant in this country. I, I think fr from that as well, it's the don't be afraid to be proactive. Because yes. There, it seems like there's like a bit of a, not a mismatch, but essentially the government wants to hear from these people but they're not necessarily yes. directly reaching out and I guess they can't be seen to be targeting certain people to hear from anyway but then obviously there's people with cybersecurity expertise that are like I want to reach out or I, sh I I've got yeah. an opinion or a view on this that don't necessarily know how to link the dots so I think that's like a really good kind of overview you've given there Jen of like there is just just go for it just send yeah send the so, I mean the problem is we both 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 groups exist in their own echo chambers yeah. public policy is such a closed community that it is such an echo chamber and security is the same it is it's a huge echo chamber and actually the government would love to come and sit in our little echo chamber with us and hear from all of you and so we are doing things like we're trying to have government people have more of a presence at security conferences so as an example um defcon in the summer in the us and i know that's a tall order for people from the UK to fly over to Vegas to go to that event. But DEFCON had an entire policy section and had governments from around the world represented, including the UK government was there. Um, and I think, you know, InfoSec had some stuff um, this year with DCMS around skills. Um, yeah. And I, I, you know, I look forward to seeing what you guys will do next year. Um, so I think, I think it's a good opportunity to go to events and meet with people. Yeah, and um, I think at Info Security Europe, we also work with D DCMS on the um, like the startups as well. So working with yes. startups within industry. So there is like a link with a lot of events and um, governments now. So if you are attending an event as a cybersecurity professional, just pop over to the government representative wherever you are in the world they'll have like a stand or a pavilion or something and just have a conversation. I think that's definitely. Yeah. Like, and really if they're not, them. if they're not the right person for the topic you're interested in, just ask them if they can connect you with someone who yeah, is. They'll usually find someone for you because they know yeah. the importance. And one thing I wanted to ask you just as we kind of mm. round off the legislation policy side of things before we move on to our next topic is how in today's world um, at large, I guess, We've, the gov governments are focusing on so, so much. There are so many mm. issues, cost mm -hmm. of living, inflation, energy, climate change, global issues, geopolitics. Yep. How is the cybersecurity stuff faring? From your, like from your, um, from your it's actually you. quite astonishing. I am, um, you know, I think yes, there's a cost um, to to them being able to get stuff done when one country invades another in Europe, or when um, we have a yo-yoing government, or when we have an economic economic crisis. There's a huge cost in their ability to actually get things done and move things forward. Um, but actually, the amount of uh, focus on cybersecurity, certainly in the UK government and actually in a lot of governments, is quite astonishing. Um, and, you, you know, the complaint that those of us who work in cyber policy have is that we can't keep up. So, um, so there's a lot going on. Um, but yeah, I think you do have to recognise that things are going to get impacted 
by other parties as well. I will I will tell you just as a quick aside, uh, when I first started doing cyber policy work, which was basically just because I was living in the US and I got very indignant about um, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which is the US equivalent of the Computer Misuse Act, and I decided that I should go and change it. Um, and I went down to DC and I really had no idea what I was doing. I mean, not a policy person, not a lawyer, not American. Um, and I rock up, no clue what I'm doing. The first time I go, it was the day that healthcare.gov fell over and everybody was watching TV during meetings. Uh, the second time I went, there was a huge immigration crisis and the TV was full of pictures of kids sitting outside chain link fences. And the third time I went was the day that they held the Ebola hearings. And it actually, for me, was a really important education on the fact that it's really easy for us to look at government workers and say they don't get it and they don't care. And actually, it's not the case. They do care and they definitely really want to get it and they want to get it right. But they do have a ton of things that they're trying to focus on and, and cover with very limited resources. And if we want to see the right outcomes, then our job and our mission should be to try and assist them and help them get to the right outcomes rather than treating them adversarially um, and assuming bad intent. Those three examples you've given just make me think that you were part of an episode of The West Wing. It does. It also seems like maybe I was at fault. Like, like wait yeah, a second. It, Let's not you... have Jen come back to DC. Yeah, yeah they knew. They knew. <laughs> but when the, when the red hair... Right down Pennsylvania <laughs> Avenue. They were like, like, "This is it." Oh God! <laughs> what's it gonna be? Yes. Coming, yeah, what's I would like today? to state, for the record, I was not in DC during the insurrection. Okay, okay. <laughs> in that's the UK, yeah. that's, that's a good one. Um, so the next thing I wanted, I'm, I'm gonna just kind of move switch on gears, to, yeah. yeah, switch gears a little bit. Just in the last kind of ten minutes, I wanted to mm. touch on something that we actually started speaking about a little bit when we were face to face meeting each other. Um, and I think it's something that's quite an interesting point and something that perhaps some of our listeners might not have thought about before or might think about quite a lot. And that is the data that we have about cybersecurity. What is the problem? Kind mm. of, I'll, I'll let you have your kind of soapbox moment, really. Yeah. Like, I know it's something you're quite passionate about talking about and how everyone really only knows a little bit. We've talked about people having expertise, and that's quite a good point that you made. Like, everyone knows a little bit, but this is like in yep. a wider sense. Yeah. Um, so I, one of the things that I love about security is I do think that we are quite data driven like we have a, a strong interest in data and and in knowing what's going on people like research they like to put out research reports and i think that's great the problem is that the data is massively incomplete so every security vendor under the sun will put out a report i'm going to take the example of ransomware i was i was a i'm a co-chair of the ransomware task force and um so ransomware is something i talk about extensively and pretty much every security vendor puts out a ransomware report um at some point right and typically that that is created based on um either data they have from their customer base like product usage or um mssp uh, activities, or it could be from incident response work that they do, where they help customers respond to ransomware incidents, or it could be from threat intel activities that they have, monitoring dark web, that kind of stuff. And so they put that data out and it's based on, you know, what activities that company has undertaken and the engagements they have with their clients. And so we have no way of knowing 
how the data from one vendor overlaps with the data from another vendor, or if it does, right? Because now we have data as well that comes from sometimes law enforcement, sometimes from data protection agencies. Um, sometimes it comes from cyber insurers, although they tend not to like to share their data very much. Um, and all of that's great. What we've done is we've created a patchwork quilt of data now, where we've sort of glued all of the data together. But again, the problem is we have no way of knowing how it overlaps. And so, like, for example, look at the cyber insurers. If cyber insurers do share data, it's going to be based on the market percentage they have, which is very low. There is no cyber insurer that has a big, big percentage of the market today. It just doesn't exist because cyber insurance is still really nascent. If law enforcement shares data, it's going to be based on the number of incidents that get reported to law enforcement, which we believe is very low. If Data Protection Authority does the same thing. If it comes from a blockchain analysis company like Chainalysis, it's going to be based on the number of wallets they're able to track. And most criminals are trying to get away with it, so they don't want their wallets tracked. So the problem that we have is the data we have is, is incomplete to a point where we don't know how incomplete the data is, if that makes sense. We know we see the tip of the iceberg. We don't know how big the iceberg is and how much of a tip we're seeing. Um, the jokes just write themselves at this point. Um, and so I think, you know, it, what that means is we don't know when new information comes in, how to contextualize it and what conclusions to draw. So I'll give you an example. In um, the spring summertime, uh, spring, um, we had Cyber UK, which is an event hosted by the NCSC. And Rob Joyce, who's the head of cybersecurity at the NSA, he came and he said, um, ransomware attacks are down. And he said it was because of the sanctions the US government had imposed on cryptocurrency and specific groups, right? And so I was intrigued by this because what I have been hearing from security companies is that ransomware incidents are up. And a lot of the times that they're saying that, it's because um, the incident of double extortion attacks or the incident of ransomware attacks that are based on um, ransoming off data have increased. And so visibility in the dark web has increased. Like you can see that because people are trying to sell the data. And so I was like, okay, I've got two data points that seem to be at odds with each other and I don't know how to interpret the data there, right? So I went to law enforcement in the UK and I said what do you think and they said well we think reports coming in have have flatlined and I was like okay do you think that's because people are more afraid of regulatory blowback because of sanctions and they said maybe and then I went and talked to the cyber insurers and I said what do you think is happening and they said oh claims are definitely down and I said okay is that because incidents are down or because you guys have made your requirements for claims much more stringent? And they said, um, we don't know. And so at this point, I have four different spots of data from four different yeah. sources. And I have no way of saying whether the incidents are actually down or if they're increasing. If they are down, why that might be. And so when we look from a point of view of what we do about it and how, what kind of interventions might have impacts, we, how would we know? How would yeah. we measure? And how do we know what the true scope and scale of the impact today is? We don't. 
So I think it's a huge problem. And I think that we really need a lot more reporting and a lot more transparency. And I know it's daunting. And the problem is there's a chicken and egg problem here. People are terrified of reporting because they're terrified of blowback. And it isn't until we destigmatize reporting. There's a there's a that that sort of period of intense growing pain that you have to go through where people report a lot and then it becomes destigmatized because people see how normal it is. And they also see that it's not going to instantly trigger regulatory blowback on them. And then people feel more comfortable reporting over time. But we got to yeah. get there. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a huge problem. And you know what um, you say about the like having all the different data points? I think recently, because we get all the reports that the. Yes, um, <laughs> I imagine. <laughs> yeah, all the reports that the vendors put together, I get in my inbox. So, yeah. having those, I was looking at one a couple of weeks ago and it was about um, DDoS attacks. Mm -hmm. And one report was saying they were up. One was saying they'd stayed the same. <laughs> right. The data, and I was just like, I emailed back the talking about, we're going full circle now because we started off talking about PR. Right. So I, emailed, I emailed the PR representative and I was like, can you explain this to me? And obviously she's not a cybersecurity expert. I didn't really get an answer. So I was like, well, the the data is just it doesn't make sense because right. how how can you have one person saying it's going up, one person saying it's going down? Oh, in the UK it's up, in the US it's it's yeah, it's very confusing. And like you said, there's yeah. just like now a patchwork quilt of information. Some of it is interesting, obviously. We don't shy away from publishing it, but I think for security professionals it's to realise that the data what you're reading isn't necessarily it's the whole picture it's just a piece of it so what would Absolutely. you say what would you say then obviously there's the issue of like more reporting etc but for cyber professionals looking at the data as it is as it stands what's the kind of advice you give in terms of like trying to contextualize it or how how yeah. is it useful how is it useful in the state it's at now yeah. I mean, I think so. I think security professionals are generally quite good at being cynical about things. Right. I think I think that goes part and parcel with the job. When your job is predicated on recognizing that systems can't always be trusted and that things are going to happen and people are going to abuse and manipulate situations, then then, you know, to come to the table with a little bit of healthy caution. And I would say apply that also to data. I'm not saying don't trust any of it. I'm not saying that you should view it that your vendors are lying to you because that's not the case. Just recognize that vendors are going to only be able to share information based on what information they have, which is not a complete view. So take it for the value it presents of that. Now, the problem that you have is your leadership see headlines and they don't have that nuance and they don't have that context, that that domain knowledge that you have about security. So you have to probably field some of those questions. I remember um, security pros would always complain to me that when the Verizon data breach report, report would come out, all of a sudden they'd have their leadership asking them about something that you know was just not, not a thing that they needed to worry about or pay attention to, but suddenly it became the be all end all because there were headlines in, in you yeah, know the major newspapers yeah. about it. I can I can imagine, <laughs> but yeah, does it makes the mainstream news as well. It does, it does. And, stuff. you know, one of the things that I really encourage people to do is check out the ICO reports. Um, because the ICO, one of the things I love about the UK government is it tries to be really, really transparent. So NCSC publishes reports on stuff that they've done, what's worked, what hasn't, what they're not sure about. The ICO does the same thing. 
they put out reports and they say, this is how many reports we had in, this is how many got to investigation, this is how many got to any kind of regulatory enforcement. And actually, if you look at the numbers, it's really small. Um, mm. Because the reality is GDPR doesn't tell you you have to be bulletproof. It tells you that you have to do things that are reasonable. And mm. so the ICO is not in the business of trying to shame and hurt companies. They don't actually want to undermine the UK economy. They want to support the UK economy. And so, you know, realistically, if you read some of those things, and I mean, I understand as a security pro, you can be for, for disclosure or you like. If your lawyers tell you no, or your CEO tells you no, your hands are tied. And I understand that completely. But the better armed you are, to make those arguments and have those conversations by looking at data that comes out of the ICO, the better situation you're in. And meanwhile, there are governments around the world who are looking at regulation on, on, on incident reporting. So the NIS updates will probably strengthen the requirements for incident reporting for essential service providers. Um, the US uh, passed CERCIA, uh, which again is focused on critical infrastructure providers. Um, and won't come into effect for quite some time, unfortunately. Um, the SEC is looking at incident reporting requirements for publicly traded companies in the US. Um, so there are steps that are being taken. Australia passed an update to its critical infrastructure law that has a requirement for incident reporting. Um, so steps are being taken, uh, certainly with a big emphasis on the critical infrastructure sector. Um, but I, I would say, you know, that that's the, the battle we have to fight is we have to figure out how to destigmatize reporting, take the fear out of it, encourage more reporting. Even if that reporting goes to like, say there was a third party entity that gathered up reports, didn't share them with regulators, but shared the data in a completely aggregated, anonymized way. So that if nothing else, we just have a better sense of what's going on. Yeah, you, you don't know? necessarily need to be pointing the finger. We just know exactly what we have a wider understanding um, for sure. And it's like good to see that there are elements of like reporting being required through legislation yeah. and through initiatives. But like you said, a lot of it does just focus on like critical infrastructure or certain sectors. So even then, even if that kind of goes into full effect, you're still not getting the um, the full picture there. But I think overall it's something to be aware of that yeah. and the information is useful it's just making sure yes you absolutely have, absolutely have the context um 100 it is useful you should definitely look at it you should use it i'm not i'm not trying to encourage people not to do that i love the data that we have yeah we just want more over time and what we don't want is to be in a situation where the bad guys are better information sharing than the than the defenders are that yeah, sucks. because they're not they're not they're not scared of sharing what they know <laughs> not. within their community. They're, are really they? not. So they're not like, oh well, we better not. They don't right. like, yeah, that's a thing, isn't it? Um, but anyway, on that note, <laughs> right? Um, thinking about what the bad guys are doing and yeah. um, driving their Ferraris. <laughs> yeah, I dread to think. Um, but yeah, on that note, I think we've covered so much today. I think the regulation stuff. Is, and the policy stuff is so important and is probably something that it, because it's not oh, ransomware and uh, hacking and stuff, it maybe necessarily doesn't 
kind of hit the headlines quite as often as right perhaps would like it to so it's been really great to talk to you as you're kind of in it in the thick of it yeah um, kind of looking at it and um, advising what people listening to something like this can do but I'd like to just say um thank obviously thank you for being on the podcast but thank you for having me for the last couple of minutes what have you got coming up where should people find you reach out to you in the next like coming months Firstly, thank you very much for having me on. I've really enjoyed it. Um, obviously, I have a, a a soapbox that I drag around with me, and I I'm very grateful to people who let me have a chance to get on it. Um, uh, you can find me. I'm infosec Jen, or one word, uh, Jen with one N, um, on Twitter and also on LinkedIn. Same thing slash infosec Jen uh, to find me there. Um, and I am, as I said, happy to to sort of have chats with people and and try and help them. Yeah, I think from today, we've definitely learned, Jen, that you are more than willing to help people out. So with that, I think that kind of brings us to the end of our chat today. I feel like we could have doubled the time for sure. That's because I talk too much. (laughs) No, no, not at all. It's um, great to hear what you've um, been discussing. And obviously, really good if anyone is heading to Black Hat Europe to have this kind of as the foundation um, before they hear you speak there. Um, So looking forward to seeing you in the future and all your speaking opportunities that are coming up. Brilliant, thank you. We have um, come to the end of the episode of the podcast. So thank you so much, Jen. And that's uh, goodbye to everyone. Awesome. Thanks very much. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Into Security Chats. For more from the Info Security team, make sure you head to our website to check out all the latest news, opinion, blogs, webinars, and live events. And we look forward to you joining us again next month on the Chats podcast to hear from our future industry-leading guests.